Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The United Nations was established after World War II with the aim of preventing future world wars and succeeded the League of Nations, which was characterized as ineffective. But how effective has the UN been? The extent and severity of global crises today are such that business as usual provides no solution. In his new book, The United Nations as Leviathan, Global Governance in the Post-American World, Roland Rich describes a necessary updated version of the organization. It's published by Hamilton Books and brings Roland Rich, who has served as an Australian ambassador and head of the United Nations Democracy Fund, to our show. He's currently the director of the Master of Arts program in United Nations and Global Policy Studies at Rutgers University. Welcome. Hey, Livid. How are you? I'm okay. Let's talk about the book. Your first chapter is headed, Why the Leviathan? Isn't the Leviathan a sea serpent referenced in several books of the Hebrew Bible? <laughs> That's where it began its life. It's a, I, I it's think a, uh, Thomas Hobbes gave it a new meaning. Yeah, well, it was originally an embodiment of chaos and threatened to eat the, the damned after their lives. But Thomas Hobbes, in his book, Leviathan, 1651, says, how, how do his ideas, deals with it differently? How does his ideas apply here? So I think what we can say about Hobbes is, in many ways, he invented the modern state. He invented um, a powerful state where people had allegiance to the state and where the state had basically uh, the, the right to use its power for the benefit of the nation. He had a social although, contract theory. There is a social contract theory there, though Hobbes himself does not use that term. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, doesn't uh, that theory say that people live together in accordance of an agreement uh, that establishes moral and political rules of behavior? Um, where, how does Leviathan fit yes, in with that? I, I think the, the Rousseau idea is certainly that, but the Hobbes idea is a notion of having a powerful state that will basically act, hopefully, in the interests of its people. Mm -hmm. And then John Locke also wrote about the Leviathan. Uh, was he? Did he have a different vision? Um, you know, I'm not sure that. I have all the information about Locke's vision. Sorry. Mm -hmm. You also cite Hedley Bull, who was an Australian expert on international relations during the second half of the last century. Didn't he describe contemporary international relations as a natural state of anarchy? Yes. And, and anarchy is the state um, in which, um, you know, most of international relations specialists believe that that's how the international community operates. You're right that uh, yours is, uh, this book is an optimistic book, that it argues that global governance is within our reach. But aren't there a lot of problems to overcome? We have the war between Russia and Ukraine, a number of civil wars around the world, border disputes, immigration problems, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Um, look, it's optimistic insofar as I think we can solve our own problems. 
I don't think the world's problems are beyond the wit of humans to solve. But I don't believe we can solve them in the direction we're currently going. And that's why I suggest a UN 3.0, a UN that has the sort of capabilities that we're looking for that will try to solve these global problems that only a global institution can achieve. And it will replace UN 2 and which replace UN 1? How are they different? The League of Nations being UN 1.0 and the UN being UN 2.0. I see. Um, So what do you see as the UN's current failings? Uh, It's a pretty long list, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, um, But, you know, Leonard, let me just start to answer that by saying um, there's also a long list of achievements. Um, And we tend not to focus on the achievements because they're, you know, not as newsworthy as, uh, um, you know, war and starvation, which is obviously the reason we, we look at the UN. But these are very, you know, difficult issues and difficult problems. Um, if we look at the history of the UN and the League, um, it's done an incredible job in areas of social welfare, in eliminating diseases, in um, allowing children to live beyond five years, whereas before the UN and the League, so few uh, um, children were able to live a full lifespan. It's um, given us a system of law in areas that we take for granted in communications and shipping and air transport, where simply every nation in the world adheres to and respects that law. But on the other hand, we know that the UN has not been a success when it comes to solving the world's crises. Um, It's obviously difficult to solve armed conflicts, but even though that will remain difficult, My proposition is let's solve the global problems. And the global problems that we will face in the next 10, 20, 100 years are problems of climate change, problems of refugees caused by climate change, and and problems of, of global dislocation. And that's why we need a Leviathan, if not to resolve those problems, at least to manage them. Has the increasing isolationism of the United States created a power vacuum at the moment? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, You know, we had a world um, designed basically by Roosevelt and his people at the end of World War II, um, and that's the American world, and slowly but surely that has collapsed, and the final nail in the coffin was the Trump administration. And now... Nobody can be certain that the U.S. will come back to the party. And, and that's another reason why we can't rely on the United States to be the guarantor and the saviour. We need to rely on ourselves, and that is through an international organisation that has vastly more capacity than the current U.N. Because we wouldn't want any other country to take on that role either, would we? Well, um, If there is another country that has the ambition, it would be China. And um, That scares me a little bit. Well, I would much prefer a powerful UN 
than to be under the auspices of a single-party state in, in the form of China. So you envision this uh, UN3 as a, a competent, competent, independent organization that incorporates the world of business and global civil society as well as governments. Exactly. Should it be given um, more uh, options? Yeah, go ahead, please. Let me just elaborate. Um, when I did my analysis of the UN strengths and weaknesses, I came to an interesting and unusual conclusion. It was the same answer to both. The member states of the organization are both its strengths in terms of its funding and its peacekeepers and so forth, but certainly its weakness in terms of their bickering and inability to focus on issues and inability to delegate to the UN, the powers it needs to resolve and manage issues. So how do we deal with that issue? Obviously, governments are not going to wither away. They're going to be an important part of any future equation. But I would like to balance governments and balance the UN General Assembly with two new assemblies, one for civil society and one for the business community. And, Leonard, these two assemblies, if I may put it in a slightly technical form, these two assemblies would not be Westphalian. They would not be based on the nation state. They would be based on a different calculus, on the vibrancy and strength of, of civil society and the strength and power and influence of business. So every country wouldn't have a seat at these tables. And, um, you know, I, in the book, I describe a method whereby a... a a committee is formed of uh, 15 civil society organizations for one committee and 15 uh, uh, corporations for another that will set the rules for establishing these general assemblies. Well, the UN has six principal operational organizations already, the General Assembly, the Security Council, the Economic and Social Council, the International Court of Justice, the UN Sec Secretariat, the Trusteeship Council, although the Trusteeship Council has been inactive for the last 30 years, um, yeah. they, they, they're not enough? That's a lot of different um, councils. Well, well, look, um, of those organizations you mentioned, all but one are basically powerless. The Security Council has power if it wishes to exercise that power, and right now we are in a second Cold War, and it is not exercising that power. The General Assembly is sometimes useful as a talk shop, but it doesn't do things. And the ECOSOC and other chambers are simply offshoots of the General Assembly. No, we need to get new voices, new powers, new ideas involved in the UN that reflects the 21st century. And in the 21st century, we've, we've migrated beyond simply governments as the only actors on the world stage. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Roland Rich. His book, The United Nations as Leviathan, Global Governance in the Post-American World, published by Hamilton Books. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Um, how... how uh, what about the ways that the UN has been addressing the climate crisis? It's called the major crisis, and didn't many countries sign on? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, when I talk to uh, about the climate crisis to my students, I always begin with a previous crisis, the crisis of the ozone layer, hmm. um, the, the chlorofluorocarbons that were destroying the ozone layer. And, and the UN was, the, was instrumental in resolving that crisis. And what it did was it established a type of IPCC. It had the world's experts talk about the problem and resolve what the issues would be. Industry initially was reluctant to accept it, but eventually industry came on board and governments came on board. We resolved the ozone crisis um, um, in a matter of a decade. In a matter of a decade. And it's completely and resolved now? Well, I think it's 95% mm. resolved. And, and, and it's a template for how we should have resolved the climate crisis. When we first became aware of the issues, um, if, if the world had followed the ozone layer template, we would have dealt with this issue already because at the time, in the late 90s and early 2000s, the immensity of the problem was not nearly as it is today. Um, but for whatever reasons, governments, climate change deniers, industry, and the oil and gas industry in particular, um, decided it wasn't going to uh, follow that playbook. And the UN has not had the power to change that particular process. So the UN can't mandate the use of electric vehicles all around the world, for example. No, no. And, and, you know, Leonard, what I'm not advocating is the UN as a world government um, or the UN to have, you know, powers, physical powers that it doesn't have today to influence things. What I want the UN to have is independence, the authority of expertise and the ability to work with other players to resolve issues. And that's what the UN is good at, um, at, at um, being able to find partners in the business and civil society world that will work on issues with it. And in fact, most of the work on the ground will not be done by the UN, but the UN will be a, a, an organization that will manage these things. In a way, it isn't now because it is completely hamstrung by governments. Well, hasn't the UN been pretty ineffective in dealing with the many millions of refugees around the world? Uh, you project that that uh, number could reach a billion. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as in so many answers, the answer is yes and no. Um, um, in a sense, the UN, I mean, the UN invented the whole solution to the refugee issues back at the end of the First World War. And in the second, at the end of the Second World War, in particular with the 1951 Convention, um, and and you know in the the hundred years in period, literally tens of millions of refugees have been resettled or returned to their homes in a satisfactory way, but the problem keeps growing, and um, and the UN has not been able to deal with the growth of that problem. So currently, I don't know what the exact figure is, but I think we have well over 50 million refugees in the world. And and um, it seems unlikely that most of them will be able to return home. And we're not finding the resettlement places. You, you know, Leonard, one of the very concrete proposals I make in the book is 
let's stop this silly American idea of a green card lottery. And let's give all those places to refugees. They deserve it. Uh, um, and, and, you know, why should people around the world, through the luck of the draw, have the great privilege of coming and living and working in the UN when we have desperate people who need that outcome? Well, the United States hasn't had total success in handling its own refugee situation. Well, again, the U.S. is a country of refugees. Uh, um, um, but but that's know, often forgotten, yes, isn't it? We, we've had, often forgotten. We have had uh, any number of laws over the course of our history that restricted immigration. Yeah, of course. And, and, and Leonard, politics goes backwards and forwards. And, you know, there are times when the U.S. has been very generous and times when the U.S. has been far less generous. And we've just lived, we've, we've been living through one of the latter times. Hmm. Um, but, but refugees have been the lifeblood of this country and migrants have been the lifeblood of this country. And that's the way it has to continue. But in the case of refugees, it's a political issue in this country. Some places are perfectly happy with refugees and others are, are shipping them elsewhere. So uh, is, this, is that something that uh, occurs throughout the world or is that something that we're dealing with as an American problem? Uh, it's not simply an American problem. Um, I mean, you know, Greece and Italy have got enormous problems with um, uh, asylum seekers. Um, and, you know, they have the benefit of having a lot of partner countries in the European Union. But even some of those partner countries are not cooperating. It's not, it's not just an American problem. It's a global problem. It's going to get worse when we have the effects of wild weather and rising seas. Um, um, and, and we're going to have millions and tens of millions and maybe hundreds of millions more refugees by the end of the century. Um, either they will completely destabilize the countries they're rushing into, um, or we need to have a system to manage them. Um, maybe not resolve the problem, but at least give the impression that the problem is being managed and that there is some solution in sight. That's mainly what governance is, is you know, trying to, to shrink the problem, if not resolve it. Has the way the world has been dealing with the pandemic been an issue? And could the U.N. have done more to, to deal yeah. with it? Well, um, you know, I, I write a chapter on the pandemic. I hadn't planned to do so, but then the pandemic happened. Um, and, you know, what was very obvious um, in um, the course of the pandemic was, again, that the member states decided what would happen, not the WHO. And the WHO's influence was minimal. And member states uh, um, used the UN for its own petty purpose, for their own petty purposes. Um, and then Trump withdrew from the WHO. The World so, Health Organization. You know, the World Health Organization. Um, clearly, that's not a solution uh, uh, to any sort of problem. And, um, and, and, you know, even with the Ebola crisis, that has come and gone over the last couple of decades. We've also seen governments trying to manipulate the UN for their own narrow short-term um, reasons instead of the WHO being strong enough to, to insist on, you know, steps 
that are necessary to deal with a pandemic. What about AIDS, for example? Um, HIV AIDS. HIV AIDS, um, and you know, which also becomes yeah. uh, becomes a uh, initially a, a racial issue, doesn't it? You know, uh, Leonard, I don't want to completely unpack this issue. It takes a long time. But there are basically two American presidents who have, to a large degree, managed this problem to levels where it's not the crisis it used to be. Um, both President Bush, uh, um, the, the, the younger, and, and President Clinton. Um, President Bush, with his TEPFAR program, um, put a lot of money into Africa to deal with this issue. And President Clinton, with his foundation, basically brokered a deal between African governments and pharmaceutical providers, Big Pharma, to provide the antiretroviral drugs at acceptable prices. But the UN wasn't involved in that. The, the, the UN was a sort of a broker for it. Mm -hmm. But yes, the, and that's not unusual. That's fine. I'm I'm happy for others to take the credit and do the hard thinking. The UN provides the environment and the moral, you know, basis for doing all these things. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. you're enjoying my conversation with Roland Rich. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The United Nations as Leviathan, Global Governance in the Post-American World. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give in the number two, WBAI.org, or call 212 2 Zero nine two nine five zero two one two two zero nine twenty nine fifty during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy of the book. But don't forget to make that fifty dollar donation in the name of London Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Roland Rich, the book again, The United Nations as Leviathan: Global Governance in the Post-American World from Hamilton Books. Uh, Mr. Rich has served as an Australian ambassador and head of the United Nations Democracy Fund. He's currently the director of the Master of Arts program, the United Nations in Global Policy Studies at Rutgers University. Um, uh, in one of your chapters, you interweave, interweave your own experiences from your career at the UN and at the Australian <laughs> Department of Foreign Affairs to provide an overview of UN structures. Yes, I, I do provide a couple of anecdotes, yes. 
And uh, were most of the were most of the problems solved, so or solvable, or actually, I think what the anecdotes anecdotes sort of show is how difficult it is to solve problems, big and small, and how there are often uh, unexpected results that flow from things. Um, but you know, even two steps forward and one step back, that's still progress. Were the people you were working with uh, trying to make things better or were they simply reflecting the uh, interests of the countries that they came from? Okay, well, here's where I say a, you know, something very negative about the UN. And that is, um, I compare, I've worked in um, um, a big law firm as well, and I compare the culture of the law firm the Australian Foreign Ministry and the UN. And whereas the law firm and the Foreign Ministry had a culture of striving for excellence and also quite a lot of internal competition, the UN has a culture of mediocrity. Hmm. It's, it's, um, it has a culture of politeness. It has a culture where you get along with everybody and never you know, create waves. Well, that's not what a global institution that manages the world's problem has to be. It has to be far more proactive. It has to be able to, you know, seek the truth, the truth to power and the truth to people. And that's not what the UN people generally do. And I think one of the reasons is that the UN hires people in accordance with national quotas and every country is supposed to get a certain number of people at the UN to reflect a number of factors, mainly population. Well, that strikes me, Leonard, as nonsense. Why not hire the best? Why not hire people who really can do the job rather than take somebody because their country is under quota? And, and unfortunately, that's the situation we have now. Well, I can understand why countries that would then be underrepresented would complain, but uh, <laughs> that's part of the problem. Not all countries are equal. Well, you know, um, um, the, the UN is not uh, um, something to make bids on and to, you know, the UN is supposed to, to do things, and we need the best people available to do those things. Let's hire them on that basis. And, you know, I, I say in my book, if I look at, for example, secretaries general of the UN, well, the two most independent secretaries general, Boutros Ghali and Kofi Annan, were both African. Hmm. So this is not saying that, you know, uh, the UN needs to be run by Europeans. Not, not at all. We just need the best people, not somebody who happens to have a certain passport. In the book, you ask if globalization is a recent development or a continuation of previous forces. But I guess I should ask, what exactly is globalization before we proceed with an answer to that question? Yeah, there, there are a few definitions that have been uh, put forward. Um, but I, I think the, the best way of thinking about it is that it is a deepening widening and speeding up of relationships and trade and finance in the globe. 
Um, and um, we've always had we've always had linkages between people around the world, but globalization is a deepening and widening and speeding up of those processes to the point where they've become quite dominant in the global economy. And you write that globalization needs governance, and that an improve would would an improved UN provide that? How? Well. Well, um, you know, when I uh, in that chapter, um, I make the point that um, we already have a whole range of institutions that provide governance for different aspects of globalization. Um, the chapter must list 25 or 30 such institutions from, you know, that deal with issues of banking and phytosanitary rules and and uh, um, uh, timber, you know, uh, um, uh, fisheries issues, lots of governance already occurs. The UN already plays a role in some of those and, and observes others. Um, what we need is basically a much more coherent role, um, not, you know, an episodic role depending on who attends a meeting or which part of the UN is responsible we need a strategic way of dealing with governance. And, and one of the things we have to do, Lopate and uh, Leonard, and this would be, you know, unpopular in the U.S., I know, we need to tax globalization because we need to tax globalization so that we can pay for its governance. How do you do That's that? Formula we, okay, um, I propose three things. One is already well known. Um, the one that's well known is a tax on financial transactions hmm. um, and that's been proposed already 50 years ago and there have been studies of it it would bring in about 40 billion dollars a year the other two taxes i would propose a tax on airline travel international airline travel um, here is a cohort that can afford to pay an extra five or ten dollars a ticket um, and that would be that would go into the the taxation fund and the third would be on containers for that, that go on shipping. You know, we've had a container revol revolution. Nearly all goods in the world are now shipped on by containers. Um, if we tax those containers a relatively small amount, we would end up with many billions more dollars. I think the UN Leviathan needs a budget of at least $100 billion, and that's how we get it. And how would that money be used? Well, um, okay, it would not be used on the UN doing its own projects, but it would be used in various ways, often as grants to different groups around the world to do various jobs. Um, and, you know, that's something the UN is very good at, and that is lending its brand to others who have the capacity and and capability of doing certain jobs. And, and you know, that's what the UN should mainly do. And, and if I may just continue on this uh, uh, for a moment, that's how the UN democracy that I ran for seven years, that's how it worked. We didn't run around the world bringing democracy to people. We gave money to civil society groups in countries of the global south um, to do work on election observation, training candidates, getting women involved, getting youth involved and so forth. 
what a great investment that is, because it invests in local civil society. It's not anybody telling them what to do. It's them sort of practicing democracy. And that's just a, a sort of a, a tiny little example of what the whole of the UN should be doing. But hasn't the world been moving in an opposite direction? We have uh, seen, if anything, um, you know, problems, well, the growth of autocracies, as I said, uh, restrictions on women's rights throughout the world, um, all sorts of border disputes throughout the world. If anything, hasn't the situation been getting worse? Well, there are certainly a lot of negatives. There are certainly a lot of negatives out there. Um, and um, it's true that the third wave of democratization, which, you know, a lot of us thought would be um, very powerful, has sort of petered out to a certain extent. Um, and um, uh, basically autocracy has reasserted itself. And the growth and, of fascism, uh, for example, the, the ele recent election in Italy, uh, what's happened in Poland and what's happened in Hungary. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm confident that democracy will prevail in those countries eventually. I'm confident that's the case and, and, will, and will prevail in the United States as well. Um, it's been buffeted by anti-democratic forces as well. But I'm confident that the established democracies will be able to, to continue. I'm less confident about the transition democracies because um, they don't have the economic basis that the established democracies do. Aren't you living in the United States these days? Yes. How uh, does democracy here compare with democracy in your home country, Australia? Um, well, in some ways, Australian politics, you know, follows and borrows from American politics. Um, so More than from the UK? And from the UK as well. But I think America is now the dominant influence, although, you know, technically we're still a parliamentary democracy. But um, our conservative parties are, are looking at how conservatives in the US are um, doing. Um, having said that, I don't think that borrowing the conservative playbook has been particularly successful. And... Um, Right now, we have a you know progressive government in Australia, and we have a progressive government in the United States. So, um, you know, there are always ups and downs, Leonard. But I, I think both those countries and the other established democracies are going to come through. You would clipping the wings of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council be a necessary step to improving the United Nations? Yes. Yes. Because without clipping their wings, they will not allow any form of reform to come to the UN. They will make sure that the UN stays exactly as it is, which is to their liking. So they're um, not likely so, to agree um, to that, right? Okay. And, and in the book, I actually provide a method. Now, you know, mainly the book is a vision. But... And... and and, you know, once you provide a battle plan, as any uniform person knows, first contact defeats every battle plan. 
So I didn't want to provide, you know, that, but I have provided the battle plan in the Security Council. And that is um, an idea that could be achieved by um, a vote in the General Assembly and a vote in the Security Council that says only matters under Chapter 7, that is the part of the Charter that gives the UN Security Council mandatory powers, only matters under Chapter 7 are subject to a veto. All other matters will pass through the normal qualified majority. Um, I think that could, you know, that could be achieved. And even though the, the five um, permanent members would object, they don't have a majority on the Security Council. And this would be seen not as a vote about substance, but a, a, a vote about procedure. So if we follow that template, we don't strip the five permanent members of their major powers, which is the power um, to veto mandatory resolutions, but we strip them of the power to block reform. Well, your vision hinges largely on governance structures. Are you concerned that that might risk putting dangerous amounts of power and trust in the hands of undemocratic non-state actors? Yeah, that, that's a good question, and I, I try to grapple with it. Um, you know, I, I, I don't see any way we can have global elections for these things. Um, but what we get, we may not get elections, but what we get is transparency. We get contestation. We get deliberation. These are all fundamental, you know, parts of democracy. Uh, um, and so we get a lot of what democracy requires through the UN Leviathan, but we certainly don't get elections. One of your chapters is the headed the Secretary General and the Secretariat. What can be done to improve that situation? Well, you know, as things stand, the Secretary General is um, decided by the permanent five. Mm -hmm. um, Every Secretary-General has been uh, basically their decision because they have a veto over the process. We've got to put an end to that. Um, we've got to have a Secretary-General that is not dependent on the permanent size. And, and the way the equation works is, for the first five years of a Secretary-General's term, that Secretary-General is necessarily timid and meek so that he, it's always been a he, so that he gets a second five-year term. And then in that second five-year term, all of a sudden, he's full, brim full of initiatives until the P5 turns him into a lame duck about two years before the end of his term. That's no way to run a railroad. Um, we've got to have a secretary-general that is not dependent on the P5 and has a certain level of independence. Have some been better role models than others? Well, you know, we have. Well, have had, they all um, revealed the, the the problems that we're discussing here. Well, the the, the exceptions were uh, Boutros Boutros Ghali, mm -hmm. who showed his independence um, in his first term, and was denied a second term by the United States. Uh huh. Um, Madeleine Albright was American ambassador to the UN at the time, um, and. Kofi Annan, who stood up to the Bush administration 
by saying the invasion of Iraq was contrary to international law, he was certainly uh, um, targeted by the administration, very nastily, in fact. Are there any other things in the in the, the, the um, four or five minutes we have left that you think we should be addressing? Well, I, I want to go back to optimism, Leonard. I want to go back to the fact that, you know, I don't simply want to bash the UN and say, you know, this and that. We've learned a lot between UN 1.0 and UN 2.0. Um, the UN is a far more effective and powerful organization than the League of Nations ever was. And we've got to follow that path. We've got to continue learning from um, those sort of examples. And, and we've got to create a UN 3.0 for our time. Um, and I don't want to have World War III before we come to that. I, I want to do that by, you know, a, 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 a proposing ideas having them debated, and then having government shouted down by the people so that we get things happening, we get reforms, we achieve some outcomes, rather than simply delegate everything to governments who have very short-term visions. Well, the UN calls conferences on climate change, for example. But yeah. in the end, um, and you say that... Things can be done, the Montreal Protocol, but um, everybody goes, everybody agrees, and then the, the situation doesn't well, seem to have improved in any way. Well, I, I think it has. I mean, the situation has certainly not improved in terms of the temperature is certainly not going down. So you're, if you're anything, exactly it's getting right worse. It's getting worse. It's getting worse, and we're going to reach, you know, the 1.5 percent increase that in, in centigrade that that we, we were trying to avoid for so long. But on the other hand, at least rhetorically, we have a consensus. At least some countries are doing things. At least we have an example of uh, positive reactions. At least we have corporations, some of the corporations, being actively involved. And at least we have investors who know that they don't want to put their money in the carbon economy, but they want to put their money in the green economy. All of those things are going to tell in the end. So what is your sense? How likely is it that we will see a restructuring of the UN in the near future? Um, and and are, are, any, are a lot of countries on board? Uh, is this something that's being discussed? Well, well the book was published this year. Um, you know, what I want to do, what can an academic do? An academic can only start a discussion. That's what I want to do, start a discussion on this, I'm so pleased that you've invited me onto your show, Leonard, so others can, you know, think about this. Um, we can't be passive. We can't simply allow development to, you know, sweep us along uh, um, in, in some sort of a current. We have to be active. We have to think about it. We have to debate it. We've got to do things. And I hope we can do things in a deliberative, nonviolent way. That's my proposal. Well, thank you so much for being on our show. I've been speaking with Roland Rich, his book, The United Nations as Leviathan, Global Governance in the Post-American World from Hamilton Books. He has served as an Australian ambassador and head of the United Nations Democracy Fund and currently is the director 
of the Master of Arts program in United Nations and Global Policy Studies at Rutgers University. It's been a pleasure talking with you, even though uh, I'm not sure that we have resolved the problems of the world with this conversation. Well, thanks very much for inviting me, Leonard. It's been a pleasure for me, too. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to our executive producer, Keziah Glow, and our audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, for all of the important work that they do for the show throughout the week. If you're just discovering our program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you uh, and also the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., We are going through a serious economic crisis at WBAI. All public radio has been suffering. Uh, In our case, we are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org or 212-209-2950 because... We need your help to keep bringing this unique, in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, The United Nations as Leviathan, Global Governance in the Post-American World by Roland Rich. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $5, $10, $15, $20, $25 a month, whatever you feel comfortable with. And that allows us to plan for the future, and we'll say thank you to anyone who signs up with a BAI buddy to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month with a BAI tote bag. But either way, I hope you'll make that call right now or go online uh, because WBAI is the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, and your contribution will be tax-deductible. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again on Monday where my guest will be Jean Felser discussing her new book, California, A Slave State. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.